Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, coming to you from uh, my office uh, in Mountain Home, Tennessee. Um, things here at the uh, presenting sponsor of Onco Farm, uh, the Gatton College of Farms, so are getting pretty busy uh, with classes and uh, uh, the inpatient service is, is uh, very high census. Uh, but uh, we got to put out a podcast, so here we are. Um, so I want to do kind of two things today. Um, so the first thing we're gonna do is is kind of the you know open up the mailbag, so to speak. Uh, the uh, I guess what I call Ask Onco Farm, uh, and then we'll we'll go over a recently published clinical trial. So I want to share an email I received uh, a little bit ago. Uh, my name is I won't I won't use his or her name. I'm a PJ1 BCPS pharmacist. Uh, and then they go on to say some, some nice things about the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for listening. Um, uh, due to some issues in, in our department, I am likely going to be acting as lead oncology pharmacist. I was wondering if you had any tips for new oncology pharmacists on how to get started learning on the vast, all the vast amount of literature data out there. Uh, this is a, a question that I get um, quite a bit. Um, I think that um, this was really the audience I was hoping to reach with the podcast. I think that um, just for those of you listening internationally, uh, when I think of uh, you know oncology farms, I think of myself. I think of someone who, after pharmacy school, did a postgraduate year one or PGY one pharmacy residency, which is kind of general in nature, broad training, and then what we used to call a specialty pharmacy, we now call a PGY two oncology pharmacy residency. And I think of most oncology pharmacists that way because that's what I am. But there are a lot of other pharmacists like this emailer who have, for lack of a more eloquent way of saying it, have ended up in oncology pharmacy. It wasn't their initial career goal, but have gravitated towards oncology pharmacy for you know whatever reason, uh, either need in their department or because of personal interest have wound up working in oncology. One of uh, the closest uh, pharmacists I work with here in my practice is that way. Um, and there's maybe a third type of oncology pharmacist, and that's someone who has worked primarily in specialty pharmacy with oral oncolytics. Um, so there, um, I, sent, I sent out a nice long email to, to, uh, this, uh, to this guy or gal, and I want to kind of go through my answer because I think uh, hopefully there's something to learn from this. So I think it's great to be asking, how do I not just catch up on what's already out there, but how to stay current? Um, so besides listening to the podcast, which hopefully is, is some small help to those of you in, in a similar situation to this emailer. Um, for me, I would recommend those of you here in the States or even internationally join uh, the Hematology Oncology Pharmacist Association, HOPA. Uh, it's a great resource um, as a member because you have access to the listserv, you have access to, to journal clubs that are done, to lots of uh, training information you have access to a listserv where you can send out an email saying hey here's a question I have about a patient has anyone else seen this in, in the past how do you handle this so that's a great resource you can tap into experts uh, across the country for me in my role the annual conference is the single greatest way to get my continuing education credits uh, to stay current for the year and if you're gonna get if you're gonna spend money or go get continuing education make it useful continuing education and that is certainly the case at HOPA uh, at times, the annual conference um, uh, programming is geared towards people who are PGY2 trained and may be a little higher level than someone who, is, who has found their way uh, into oncology pharmacy and is relatively new to the field. For those of you folks, I would look out for, they've done this in the past, but HOPA has done a boot camp 
which is like a half-day mini-session uh, or um, part of the conference before the annual conference starts that would go over the basics of like chemotherapy, induced nausea and vomiting, and some of the bread and butter of certain cancers. That's a great resource um, to go through. Um, so I think joining HOPA is great. If you're in the, in the UK, there's BOPA, the British Oncology Pharmacy Association, which has some of, uh, I assume, some of the similar offerings as well. Um, and I know that HOPA in and of itself, their annual conference is now available um, for virtual attendance. So you can actually can get all that continued education, see all that material, hear all those presentations uh, from your home or from your office, uh, which, which should help with some of the expenses and make it a little more palatable to to maybe your employer to pay for that uh, that uh, conference membership if it's a virtual attendance. But if you can, come to the meeting, you know? We can hang out. Uh, you get to meet other folks um, in oncology pharmacy. It's a great way to network, great way to, to bounce ideas off each other and talk shop. Um, another resource um, that I use uh, also is the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or NCCN guidelines. This is a group of some of the premier cancer hospitals in the United States and they get together and they write the guidelines and this is what the experts say we should do based off of evidence as well off of expert opinion especially where there is a lack of good evidence for what to do. Um, it's very algorithm based and it can be a little dense to navigate because there's a lot in those guidelines that go into workup diagnosis staging monitoring. Um, they are free to access. They do require creating an account and these days you can't do anything without creating an account online. Um, so the first half of each um, you know guideline document has the kind of the algorithms for, for treating which are helpful. They are very well referenced uh, so oftentimes when I go to the NCC and I'm looking what does NCCN think is the first line for for this disease state or whatever. Sometimes I do that but all more often than that I'm looking for where is the, the, the original reference, kind of the landmark reference of this particular chemo regimen? And they'll have that cited and usually with a link to PubMed. So I can go look at the, the primary literature for myself, which for me is the most important thing in my day-to-day -day environment. Um, you know, the NCCN will say this is the regimen to use, but they won't necessarily say, uh, they might say what the dose is, but they won't say what is the administration time of, of this dose of cisplatin. They won't say how did they do their mannitol or did they do normal saline to prevent uh, nephrotoxicity in this study. They won't say those things uh, when they list the regimen. They won't say did every patient get growth factor prophylaxis. They won't say did every patient get an antibiotic to prevent neutropenic fever. Those sort of things will be in the method section of the primary study. They won't say in the guidelines how much to dose reduce for this toxicity. That should be in the method section. Uh, in fact, anything from the New England Journal of Medicine will not just have a, a nice method section, but there will be a supplementary appendix that has um, more information on the methods in the supplementary appendix, as well as um, really a full-blown um, protocol as well, which is great. Uh, the second half of the NCCN guidelines, whether it's the, the breast cancer guidelines, the non-small cell lung cancer guidelines, whatever it may be, uh, is going to have a, a little write-up that serves as really a mini-review. Uh, and I'll point out that sometimes these are hard to navigate. For example, the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma guidelines, you know, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is like 1,801 different types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I'm exaggerating a small amount. Um, so there's a lot to go through to find what you're really doing. Uh, so sometimes your control F or command F function can be helpful if you're just looking for, you know, growth factor or something like that. 
Um, there are textbooks as well that you can get access to. Uh, textbooks particularly are good at a historical perspective of this is how things have been treated historically and why we tend to do this type of treatment. Uh, really good at providing insights onto how important surgery may be relative to chemo, relative to radiation for treating this particular disease state. Um, one cautionary note about textbooks is uh, if, if I were as an academic, if I were writing a, a textbook chapter today, uh, after I write it, it's going to go off and get peer-reviewed. That process is going to take a couple months then I'll do revisions. That'll take a month, then it goes to a press. By the time it gets published, it was a year after it was originally written, which means it's at least a year out of date. And then if you wait another three, four, five years until they redo an edition, your average textbook may be two to four years behind the literature. And as you know, if you listen to this podcast, oncology moves pretty darn fast. So textbooks can be great for historical perspective and background. Uh, but as far as current data, uh, that would be the big limitation. Um, if you are in oncology pharmacy and you're new and you know you're going to be working here for a while and you like it and you love it, I would strongly encourage you work towards BCPO certification. It's Board Certified Oncology Pharmacist credentialing offered by the Board of Pharmaceutical Specialties. Two reasons. One, it's nice to add some, some letters to your name. So to be PharmD, BCOP. Um, but more important, and that may provide some job security, there may be a little raise that goes along with this, but more importantly, the training process to, to if you've done a residency, a PGY2 oncology residency, you go sit for the exam after that. If you haven't, you have to work in oncology pharmacy for I think it's three years. Um, and getting the certification is, is worth it, not just for having the credential, but there are extensive training programs, uh, both in person and on paper, and the, the, the study materials for this are very in-depth, very exhaustive, and uh, are a great way to become current on not just how things are treated today, um, but how things have been treated. What do the studies say? What, um, what is the primary literature? Um, what are the landmark clinical trials? That training program is very, it's, 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 it's rigorous. Um, to prepare for the BCOP exam, and it's a tough exam, but it, it will be worthwhile to go through, even if you, you don't end up taking the test, because those materials are very oncology-specific, written by oncology pharmacists for other oncology pharmacists. And if you're new to this field, you have had that struggle, probably, where you have tried to find an answer to a, a simple, a seemingly simple question, and you've looked every which way you can and have not been able to find it. And then you ask maybe someone who's done this for years, like myself, and they just know it off the top of their head because there is, there's a bit of word of mouth of things that are just passed down uh, that are not written down. And that's very frustrating to new oncology folks. Of course, there are things like LexiComp and Micromedics that are helpful. Um, for me, one of my favorite features of LexiComp is um, the chemotherapy regimens, not because it lists the regimens, but because it has links uh, to the reference, to the primary reference itself, which I go to uh, very frequently. Um, I follow some folks on Twitter that I find very helpful when new drugs are published and to have their take. So Twitter can be useful if you know kind of who you're following. Um, I also subscribe to uh, the email table of contents for things like the New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of Clinical Oncology, Lancet Oncology. So anytime a new issue or new, something new is published, uh, 
the, that link to the article shows up in my email inbox and I'm pretty quickly at this point able to read through that abstract and see if I need to do more than read the abstract or read the study in and of itself. And you know, practice makes perfect. The, makes perfect. the more you do this, the faster you'll become on, on finding information and finding it quickly to the point that it doesn't disrupt your whole workflow. Uh, if, you're, if you're reviewing chemotherapy orders or reviewing chemotherapy preparation. And then one of the greatest resources that is underused, in my opinion, is the package insert. This has more data that has been published, especially for new drugs. Everything that's been submitted to the FDA somewhat goes into making that package insert. So that's a great resource and, and one that I use probably on a daily basis is just Googling, you know, um, inacidinib prescribing information PDF and you'll get the, the first hit will be the, the, that package insert. So those would be my tips to uh, anyone else who thought of emailing that same question about how do I stay current and learn all the, the vast amount of information uh, that goes into this if I haven't had formal training on oncology pharmacy. So those are some, some uh, you know, maybe eight to ten things that I would recommend uh, that I, I hope are helpful to you. Uh, if not, just keep listening to the podcast. Uh, the, the next thing I want to talk about just came into my email uh, today, actually last night, because there was a new edition of the New England Journal of Medicine every Wednesday night, uh, and this is the relevance study. So this is looking at rituximab and lenalidomide in follicular lymphoma, advanced untreated follicular lymphoma. So just to spend, now let's say a minute on follicular lymphoma. It is a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and we tend to to categorize non-Hodgkin's lymphoma into one of three buckets, either indolent, which is slow growing, aggressive, or very aggressive. Uh, your very aggressive lymphoma, kind of the archetype is Burkitt lymphoma. For aggressive lymphoma, it's diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And then for indolent, it's follicular lymphoma. Uh, there are about 75,000 cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the U.S. every year. Um, uh, diffuse large B cell is the most common of those. There are about 5.4 cases per 100,000 people. Follicular lymphoma less common, 2.6 per 100,000 people. So uh, follicular lymphoma is about half as common as diffuse large B cell lymphoma. It is slow growing and it's considered incurable. Uh, it's got a five year overall survival rate of about 88%, but that's not because we're curing those folks. As I said, it's just because it is slow growing. Uh, treatment for follicular lymphoma is rituximab or another CD20 monoclonal body plus chemo. And the most common regimen that you see is RCHOP followed by probably RCVP, which is RCHOP without doxorubicin and then um, bendamustine rituximab and the NCCN puts all those at category 2A recommendation, so each one are kind of equivalent. However, there have been a couple recent studies in the last year looking specifically at bendamustine rituximab compared to RCHOP or RCHOP and RCVP. And RCVP was used in place of RCHOP in those who maybe are older with some cardiovascular comorbidities, not great candidates for an anthracycline. So the BRIGHT study, which was published in Blood in 2014, showed that bendamustine rituximab was non-inferior to RCHOP, RCVP, in indolent lymphomas, so mostly follicular, but there were some mantle cell, and experts would tell you that maybe mantle cell should not be classified as an indolent lymphoma. And then there was a study in Lancet 2014 um, that showed that bendamustine was superior to RCHOP with regards to progression-free survival and had less toxicity, so like 0% alopecia versus 100% in RCHOP. Less hematologic toxicity, although there was more dermatologic toxicity, so rash with bendamustine rituximab. So that's a little bit of background just to, 
to go over this study. This is relevance, where the R is rituximab, um, uh, the L is lalimide, so rituximab, lalimide V versus any AN chemotherapy. So this was a regimen that they call R-squared in the study, which sounds neat, R-squared, right? Rituximab Revlimid, which Revlimid's the brand name for, for lalimide. So uh, I'm just gonna say Rev, Retux, Retux Rev, I don't know, Rituximab and lalimide versus chemoimmunotherapy. Uh, so there are about, gosh, about 1,000 patients in this study, so 500 in each arm. And this will be important, I think, when we talk about this, in that in the chemotherapy arm, uh, 370 got RCHOP, 117 got bendamustine rituximab, and only 27 got RCVP. So the way this is kind of billed is that this is rituximab and lalimide versus chemotherapy. It was mostly RCHOP patients, and we have that previous study from Lancet 2014 showing that bendamustine rituximab is likely superior to RCHOP for follicular lymphoma. So we're, we have a comparison versus something that might not be the best comparison in our job. But certainly not wrong, because it's used a whole lot. Uh, and this is an indolent lymphoma. If you've got someone who's 73 and a good performance status, it, it may not terribly matter what you use from a chemotherapy standpoint, because it is such a slow-growing lymphoma in many patients. So kind of to cut to the chase here, there was no difference in, um, in median progression-free survival between uh, chemotherapy with rituximab and chemotherapy with linalidomide. Um, and you know, the baseline demographics were pretty well balanced between both groups. There was no difference in overall survival, which you would really not expect there to be because it's, it's slow growing. You'd have to follow people for a very long time to see a difference in overall survival. Um, prior to this study, the NCCN has revlimid or linalidomide and rituximab as a category 2B recommendation. I would not be surprised if this were to be increased. So just to go a little bit more in depth, um, the rituximab CHOP, so R-CHOP, RCVP, bendamustine rituximab are the standard chemotherapy cycles. So they would get, uh, I believe it was six cycles of that, and then they got maintenance rituximab. So they get rituximab every two months, every, um, every eight doses for 12 cycles. So basically another two years of maintenance, which is based off of uh, the PRIMA study and some other studies showing that maintenance rituximab is helpful for these indolent lymphomas. Um, by the way, those studies I mentioned with um, comparing bendamustine rituximab to RCHOP did not account for maintenance rituximab, which, which is pretty common practice nowadays. In this study, they got six cycles of chemo, then maintenance rituximab, or the rituximab linalidomide. Uh, one thing that's a little unique is the first cycle of rituximab lalimide was weekly rituximab. So it was 375 milligrams per meter squared of rituximab week one, two, three, four. So very high dose rituximab early on. And uh, if you listen to the rituximab episode from a couple weeks ago, we, we don't know what the max effective dose of rituximab is. And I think that's important to point out. Uh, the lalimide dose was 20 milligrams. Um, starting day two to 22, so they didn't start at the day of rituximab, they waited the next day um, of a 28-day cycle. Um, 10 milligrams uh, adjusted for renal dysfunction. And then those folks uh, would go on to receive um, basically uh, a year of rituximab, um, I'm sorry, a year of, of lalimide and rituximab, and then another year of maintenance rituximab. Uh, and it's a little hard to see you know, the way they describe it in words in the method section of the study is really hard to see. If you go into the, the supplementary appendix in the New England Journal of Medicine, 
uh, it, they have a nice schema that's very clear to see the doses and how that they were given. Um, and again, they have all the dose reductions for toxicity. That's not in the method section of the paper. It's in the supplementary appendix, which uh, is a very helpful tip. Um, what you also don't see in the manuscript is the, um, the subgroup analysis looking at type of chemo. And there is a trend that bendamustine rituximab was better than um, the rituximab lenalidomide group. But again, there are only 117 people in the bendamustine group, so not powered to see a difference. But there was a sizable trend that seemed to favor bendamustine over lenalidomide in these follicular lymphoma patients. Conversely, there was a trend favoring lenalidomide over RCVP, both in conjunction with rituximab. So I would keep that in mind, and I would not just blanket say that uh, lenalidomide rituximab is equal to rituximab plus chemo. It's probably fair to say it's equivalent to RCHOP in efficacy, but I, I, we cannot say that to bendamustine rituximab or RCVP uh, in, my, in my humble opinion. Uh, the differences in, in toxicity were kind of what you would expect, so more severe myelosuppression, uh, especially, you know, neutropenia uh, in the chemotherapy group than uh, the lenalidomide group. There was more rash and in the lenalidomide group than in the chemo group because rash is a pretty common side effect of lenalidomide. And, of course, they got, uh, you know, VTE prophylaxis with aspirin or heparin, lomoloquate heparin, uh, per standard of care for the, uh, for the lenalidomide. And again, that's the, the relevant study published uh, today in the New England Journal of Medicine. So that's today's episode. You know, one part uh, Ask Oncofarm, one part uh, Journal Club. Uh, I want to thank you for listening to Oncofarm just, and Oncology Pharmacy Podcast. Uh, I would ask you to find us on iTunes. Uh, give us a five-star uh, rating. Review us and tell us what you like about the podcast, what you'd like to hear more. I'd love to see more emails of questions you have, of things you'd like to, to hear about on the pod. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at PharmDecentive and follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. And, uh, you know, until you email me, I will uh, see you a little further down the road. Thank you.